Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. In the wake of Hurricane Harvey, we've talked a lot about gasoline prices spiking, crude values falling. But there's another chemical that is big produced, uh, big production in Texas, and uh, it possibly could be more important. I'm talking about ethylene, and I want to bring in Jack Kasky, uh, who highlighted this in a recent Bloomberg News story. He is our chemical companies reporter, and he is based in Houston. Also, uh, I want to bring in Jason Miner, senior global chemicals analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, based in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Jack, let's start with you. Uh, Can you give us a sense of the importance of this chemical that you highlighted, ethylene, and why uh, the production of this chemical in Texas could be a bigger impact on what we consume every day than even gas prices? Yeah. Hi, Lisa. Um, Yeah, ethylene is the world's most produced petrochemical. Uh, It's in everything. It's in plastics, your food packaging, your toys, it's in tires and diapers and pretty much anything. Uh, things you don't even think about, you know, rubber uh, contains ethylene synthetic rubber. Um, the list is hundreds, if not thousands, of products long. Uh, it, it, it's converted into, you know, vinyls. Um, it's, it, like I said, plastic. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but it is the core of the petrochemical industry. All right. If it's the core of the petrochemical industry, uh, Jason, I'd like you to uh, come in and comment on this. Uh, how long, what kind of time frame and, and what are some of the specific challenges uh, that are uh, going to be faced by the industry to get it up and running? Yeah, there, there, uh, thanks. There, there's a couple of effects here, actually, um, two waves, perhaps. Uh, so in the near term, uh, the estimates range between sort of 40 and 60 percent of Gulf ethylene being down. That's maybe... A fifth, the U.S. maybe a fifth of the world's ethylene supply. So the numbers sound big. Of course, depends how long the adages are. And remember, um, we haven't starved this industry for capex. There's been a lot of spending, which is operating in our favor. The second wave that might be more impactful is logistics. Um, we did have a massive wave. So ethylene, first and biggest step, it turns into plastic, polyethylene. And that's that's where it becomes kind of the face of petrochemicals, and we use it every day. We had a massive wave of expansion in the U.S. coming in plastic this year. And uh, with that sort of coming over the next 24 months, you know, it's, it's as much as a quarter of additional capacity. If those plants get back online fast, the next wave would be that, that those pellets create sort of a local glut. They, they need to be exported. And uh, clearly, if you look at uh, on the terminal, we have a nice map, real-time map of the ships in the Gulf there. It's a big parking lot, a lot of ships waiting, and the rail washouts uh, could be pretty significant as well. Jason, I'd love to get your sense of why so much of the production of ethylene is based in Texas. Energy, energy, energy. Uh, back to oil and then more recently, uh, shale gas and, and uh, the wave of expansion. Really, the U.S., uh, because of shale gas, has become the world's plastic and ethylene hub. I mean, uh, we're at a moment where since 2010, about $179 billion of CapEx new projects have been announced. And it's all driven by our very low cost uh, position, and that's because of shale gas. So 
uh, the supply is right there, and then you can ship, of course, in good times uh, from there quite effectively to the rest of the world. Jack, uh, the companies that are specifically involved, we've seen pictures of uh, the Arkema plant and so on, uh, owned by uh, non-U.S. Uh, uh, enterprises. What what kind of sort of new manufacturing or new you know equipment is going to be necessary? Because I mean, if the motors, if the electric motors are out, uh, aren't they going to require rewiring? Yeah, that can happen. I mean, it's really not going to be clear until they get in there and try and start these plans up what the problems are, if any. Yeah, electrical problems historically have been have built, laid uh, plant startups for months uh, in past storms. You know, not commonly, but it does happen. Um, but yeah, water can. Who knows where the water gets when it's a flood situation? So um, there's, I mean, and it's contaminated water, correct? Well, it's brackish water. It's, it's corrosive. If it's uh, you know, if on these, these plants are on the coast, so the water would, would be brackish. I don't know that it's contaminated. It just has salt in it, which is not good for metal. Jason, I'd love to get your sense on whether there's a precedent for this type of disruption in the ethylene production industry. Uh, going back, Katrina Rita were uh, really the the uh, the big precedent, and um, you go back to 2005. Now, what's interesting is these companies, and let's remember Dow DuPont merged today. So, what I'm about to say is even more true. But these are behemoth companies with a lot of diversification. Um, when you go back to the third quarter of 05, um, Dow Chemical had re- only a two percent negative impact on their volumes from the Katrina and Rena hur- Rita hurricanes. That just speaks to how hugely diverse these uh, companies are, but that's really the precedent. Um, And again, it kind of mutes what, what from an investor's perspective, you might see uh, some of the company impacts, although um, perhaps in chloralkali, maybe at Olin, uh, and maybe some of the industrial gases for the rebuilding in 2018, the welding gases will see a little bit of improvement in earnings from this. I want to thank you both very much. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, Jack, you got a final comment? Yeah, I was just going to add that um, some analyst, Jeffries in particular, is out with a note this uh, overnight saying, you know, it could be until November until the uh, petrochemical industry uh, is, you know, reaches the, the pre-hurricane level. So that's two months from now. So that we could, we're, 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 of course, nobody really knows, but it could be a, a month-long uh, process here. Thanks very much uh, for joining us, uh, gentlemen. Uh, Jason Miner, Senior chemical, uh, Global Chemicals Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And uh, Jack Akaski, he is our chemical companies reporter for Bloomberg News. They're both reporting from Houston. So it turns out, Pimp Fox, that algorithms get bored sometimes. Uh, and it seems like perhaps in this market where trading volumes are just sagging away, uh, even those computerized systems just can't seem to get their mojo back. Matt Maley joins us now. He's Managing Director and Equity Strategist at Miller Tabak & Company. He is uh, speaking with us uh, after writing a note earlier today in which you say, it's going to be a very boring day in front of the long <laughs> weekend. Um You're right. But I think that this is important because it's been boring for a while and there have been these lulls and the market has sort of either drifted along or gone up. What do you see in your models that is going to break this this sort of uh, this sort of trend and push it in one direction or another? 
Well, it's uh, well. One thing is, we we do have to get past the the kind of the, the late August uh, doldrums that we get every year. Whether the algos uh, long before the algos were involved, uh, the markets seem to be listless. Uh, you know, late late in, in August. Uh, so that's going to be one thing. But more importantly, we're going to have to see what's going to. I think people, you know, there's going to be a lot of focus, of course, what's going to happen in Washington with the, uh, the debt ceiling and things like that. But we also have, uh, of course, uh, what what is the Fed going to do on the uh, on um, <clears throat> on shrinking the balance sheet. And will that have an impact? Because a lot of people are saying it's definitely going to do this or it's definitely going to do that. But we, but the most people and the smartest people, I think, are saying, we don't really know what's going to, what's going to happen with yeah. that. And I think a lot of people are sitting on their hands because of that. Um, that's an interesting take, Matt, because when do you think that we're actually going to get a sense of what the effect will be? Because even if the Fed announces some plan in, say, September, which is the absolute earliest and it's more likely right. October, uh, we aren't going to see the real impact for a while, right? Well, yes. I mean, it, it, they they can. They I, we expect that they will tell us when they're going to start doing it. Some people say they they could start doing it as early as September, but I agree, it's something that that's probably going to be October at the, at the earliest. Um, but there will be less liquidity in the system, and uh, by definition, and and people are a little bit worried about that. Now, they're going to go gradually, uh, so that should be uh, positive. And I do think that the you know that the market has uh, uh, they've kind of signaled, and, and some of these other uh, global central bankers have been saying that. Uh, if things get majorly disrupted, they can step back on the accelerator. Uh, but it's still uh, it's been a key driver to the, the markets in the last eight years. Not the only driver, by any stretch of the imagination. But with with, uh, with liquidity going to be less plentiful, people are worried about it. Matt, uh, you're joining us from Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061, uh, Boston Newburyport, as well as 1330 uh, Metro West and the, and the South Shore. And I want your thoughts on uh, the biotech industry, which has a great presence in the area. Bluebird Bio, for example. These stocks, you know, you look at them every day. Bluebird Bio up another four and a half percent. Biogen moves higher. Vertex Pharmaceuticals. What does the biotech industry tell you about the market? Well, it's, it's it's certainly a bullish uh, a bullish move in this group. I mean, we turned uh, positive on the group back in the in the spring, back in March, uh, and it kind of moved sideways for a while, but it broke out very nicely. And on a technical basis, it's, it's had this great move. Uh, it, it made a double bottom in 2016, and then this year, after a little bit of rally, it sold back off, but held its 200-day moving average. And since then, it's been making it's made three higher highs since then. So it's very very bullish on a technical basis. And one of the things, though, that I think is going to be very important. Important uh, because some of the innovations there on the fundamental side, things look very, very good. But people are a little bit worried. Geez, will we get a repeat of what happened in 2015 when the group has been rallying very, very strongly? Hillary Clinton came out and made comments about uh, drug prices, and the group basically crashed. It fell 30 some odd percent. The difference is there's a much different setup this time. In 2015, the group had rallied 80 some odd percent over the pre- previous 15 months and it wildly outperformed the S&P, which is only up about 17 percent over that time frame. So what it is, it gave so many people a huge amount of confidence, confidence to add leverage to their, to their positions. So when the group rolled over, uh, it, it became much worse than it otherwise or should have, have because the fundamentals hadn't really changed. But people had to unwind their leverage. They were forced selling, uh, you know, margin calls and things like that. Right now, this rally has been very good, but it hasn't been anything more than the, the S&P has been. It's had a, a 36% rally along with a 30%, 36% rally in the S&P. So we don't, shouldn't have the same kind of leverage. So uh, there's no guarantee the stock, uh, the group can't go down, especially if the broader market corrects. Uh, but we don't have that leverage in there. So I, don't, I strongly believe that people don't have to worry about the same kind of disaster taking place this time around. 
turnaround uh, if the market sells off a little bit that took place in, in 2015. Matt, what uh, specific sector do you think is most at risk of a sell-off? Well, I mean, you know, it, it's funny because the one thing that the, the people keep pointing to is in the energy stocks and, and, and how uh, oil could go dip back down to 42 and test 42 again or even drop into the 30s. But that group is, you know, it, it's pretty washed out, and, and, and so I would not look for that group. The one group that, uh, that I do get a little bit worried about, of course, is the technology sector. The FANGs have just had this great uh, amount of uh, – uh, uh, I'm sorry, obviously, had a great run this year. Uh, but the SOX Semiconductor Index has been stalling out a little bit lately, and that's been a great leadership group within the uh, technology sector. So if we see a, 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 you know, a rolling over of, of the tech stocks or the semiconductor stocks, uh, and then, of course, the FANG stocks lose any kind of momentum again, uh, that could lead to the kind of at least minor unwinding of leverage that some people have added to their portfolios recently. And again, I'm not saying we'll see a, a complete crash in the group like we saw in, this, in the biotechs a couple of years ago. Uh, but it could, uh, you know, could leave the group vulnerable. If, uh, so keep an eye on those semiconductor stocks more so than the fangs as we move forward. Matt, uh, we keep hearing all about uh, the valuation. In other words, uh, how expensive uh, stocks uh, are, at least on a relative basis. Uh, does that make any sense in a market like this? Well, on a long-term basis, it, you know, it, evaluations do matter. I mean, it, it's funny how, uh, you know, I guess my, my key point is that if you've, you've, you've got a lot in the stock market, you've had a great run here, that's great. But the, the one thing is that people say, geez, they're afraid they're going to miss the next move. I mean, you know, there's a lot of fear. And I can understand that with institutional uh, investors because they get measured on, you know, every quarter, every year. But the individuals, it's like, hey, I've had this great run since 2009. Uh, and, and, and do I really do I really have to worry about missing the next 5% move? I guess my point is that on a long-term basis, the market should be fine. But most people do much better when they're buying more uh, when the market is inexpensive and cheap and, and oversold than they do when the market is, is overbought and expensive like it is now. I mean, there's a reason that, that Warren Buffett has is, is, got his biggest cash position ever. Yeah. He, he became a billionaire by buying cheap. I'm not saying get out of the stock market by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, you have a little bit. Uh, there's nothing wrong with taking a few chips off the table so you have something if and when the market does correct. Matt, real quick, the dollar, do you think this is the year's biggest pain trade that we're going to see a strengthening uh, against all of the uh, current short positions. The, the, the potential is definitely there. We have uh, uh, with the DSI, which is the Daily Sentiment Index, uh, uh, which is a sentiment indicator. That's very low, only 10% bulls. And then plus, as you mentioned, the positioning, everybody short the thing. Uh, it's just the, ap- the exact opposite of what we saw at the beginning of the year when everybody was long. Now everybody's short. I think the pain trade in the last four months of the year could be to the upside in the dollar. Thank you very much for being with us. Matt Maley, he is Managing Director and Equity Strategist for Miller Tabak. Joining us from Boston, he's on site at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Can President Trump get very rapid action from Congress on emergency funding for Texas? Here to tell us more is our senior White House correspondent, Margaret Tolliver. She joins us from Washington, and you can follow Margaret on Twitter at Margaret Tollev. That's T-A-L-E-V. All right, Margaret. uh, So what are the chances that uh, the bill or when Congress comes back that we get a bill that includes all of this emergency funding? I think the chances are very good. I mean, uh, with the caveat that anything can happen, <laughs> and as we've seen time and time again, unexpected drama has become injected in some of these events. But look, um, 
from the White House's perspective, there is a real desire to not have a debt limit crisis uh, at the end of September, to not have a debt limit crisis or a default situation that can affect markets and blow up plans for a tax cut plan. And there is also this a parallel request to have a real debate over uh, the government spending bill uh, including, yes, the wall, even if that fight gets deferred, and yes, the possibility of a shutdown, even if it's temporary shutdown, that some fiscal conservatives want. To be able to decouple those events is something they'd like to do. And everybody uh, across the spectrum uh, within the Republican Party, as well as Democrats, understands the need and wants to support the need uh, to cover you know, FEMA's bills in, in the next few weeks so the money doesn't run out before the end of the fiscal year. So linking the two... Uh, in theory, could be risky if it denied um, the emergency money, but uh, I think the calculation at this point is going to be that uh, this will be an offer that, that lawmakers can't refuse and that gives the ones who have constituencies that would be troubled by the debt ceiling increase clean um, some cover to do it. So basically, this is shaming the more conservative side of the GOP into passing a bill that they might otherwise feel uncomfortable with because they can't go back to their constituents and say, yeah, I voted against helping all those people who are now homeless, those thousands and thousands of people in shelters. Yeah, you could look at it as shaming. You could look at it as, as political cover. You also could look at it as sort of a tacit uh, promise to let them have the fight over government spending, just not to attach it to paying debts that are already incurred. Margaret, you know, I was looking uh, recently at renderings of uh, the border uh, wall that uh, the, the president has uh, uh, been speaking about. And uh, to set aside the issue of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing for just a moment, but it struck me that building a wall might, is it possible that we could build those kinds of projects to prevent against future catastrophes or at least mitigate against uh, this kind of catastrophic flooding? Oh, you are talking about a twofer that would be a border wall construction as an emergency management preventative tactic. You should have right? gone into politics, right? Exactly. This, is, this is amazing. Well, or at least, in other words, I mean, to kind of shift the, the well, seriously, to shift the focus, I mean, because, I mean, we're, we're facing the potential of another hurricane that is forming in the eastern Atlantic. And uh, many uh, experts say that, you know, we should expect more types of this extreme uh, weather. Why not, uh, you know, why not shift the attention? Say, all right, we're going to build this, but first we're going to build, you know, these uh, systems and infrastructure to prevent against future catastrophes. Okay, I'm going to tell you that I have not heard any uh, sort of extensive substantive scientific debate about this, but that if we hear that there's funding for an Army Corps of Engineers study to figure out overlays for a border wall and for flood management, okay. I'm calling you. You're going to get the credit for this one. But I, but I will say that President Trump has looked, of course, at putting solar panels on his conception for a wall, has looked at a number of different ways to uh, both sell it rhetorically and politically and to uh, try to come up with uh, funding mechanisms that could, in theory, work or at least keep the debate alive. I would say nothing is off the table in this debate, but for now, this administration has decided that the one thing they'd like to take off the table is this debate over the debt limit, over the debt ceiling. And they think, I think that they think, and we'll know uh, perhaps later today, uh, that this, that the coupling of that with the emergency uh, FEMA and SBA assistance, at least just to patch through the fiscal year, is uh, maybe the smartest way to do it. Margaret, I'd love you to take a little bit bigger picture view on the GOP and the mood right now uh, in Washington and just get a sense of as we move beyond the health care debate and toward something that is much more comfortable for everybody within the GOP, which is tax reform, have have things gotten less acrimonious? 
Well, over the summer, no, they've gotten more acrimonious and something that uh, that should be easier than health care uh, tax reform uh, has complexities of its own, which we're going to see emerge. That's part of the reason why the Trump administration is looking for ways, again, to at least take the debt ceiling fight out of the way and let this be a, a fight over government spending. But uh, look, the earlier plans for broad strokes tax reform, you know, uh, have uh, shrunk in terms of ambition so that the must pass situation now really is a tax cut as far as uh, the Republican Party is concerned. And there are uh, divisions within the Republican Party about those who think that uh, any cuts have to be offset. How are they going to be offset? Uh, Is the Trump administration and the congressional leadership going to propose tax increases on the very wealthy or no tax cut uh, for the wealthy? What are the thresholds going to be? What's the size of the middle class tax cut? What's more important, middle class tax cuts or the corporate tax cut? Can President Trump Trump live with something that's uh, not a 15% cut, but something in the mid-20s? These are all questions that uh, the White House has not answered because they haven't put details to paper, and that um, Congress hasn't answered because they've been gone for several weeks. All of this will come to the fore in the next couple of weeks as lawmakers come back. Margaret Tollev, thank you so much for joining us, and I really hope that you can have some uh, quality time off uh, over this long weekend. Shares of General Motors are up more than two and a quarter percent, as are the shares of Ford Motor. Chrysler shares are up nearly five percent. What does this tell us about the automobile industry and August auto sales? Well, here to answer that question is Jessica Caldwell, Executive Director of Industry Analysis for Edmunds.com, joining us from Santa Monica, California. Jessica, thank you for being with us. Uh, Give us your view of today's report for August automobile sales. Yeah, it's looking a little disappointing, to be quite honest. We thought August would be the first month in 2017 that could possibly be a month in, in, in 2016, but it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. I think a lot of sales were, were hampered by the last week with Hurricane Harvey, especially for brands like Ford, who reported a, a decrease of 2.1%. Um, but I think overall, it's a, it's a little all over the place, but I would say I would sum it up with the word disappointing. Jessica, you know, As Pim was saying, shares are up, and I'm wondering how much investors are looking beyond the disappointing numbers, saying, you know what, give them some slack because uh, Texas is a huge market and it was basically all but shut down in the past, in the last week of the month. Uh, And then looking ahead, you're going to see all of these sales to people who lost their cars. It's going to actually end up being kind of a lifeline for some of these companies. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much exactly right. And I, I would imagine why there is a bit of a rally, because we would expect to see replacement demand really um, fulfill in the uh, the rest of 2017. So I think that that is, is certainly going to happen. And it seems as if, from what I'm hearing in um, from Houston dealers, is that a lot of the inventory is not as affected as people think it is. So those trucks and those cars will be available for people who may have lost um, during the hurricane. And, and we saw this with other storms like Hurricane Sandy, for instance. We saw a big boost to auto sales for the rest of the year. I'm wondering, do you think this will also boost uh, used car sale values? Um, 
Probably so. Um, I would imagine Texas is a, is a pretty big used car state. They do a high percentage of used vehicles. And used is a bit tricky because there is a lot of demand for, you know, pickup trucks. And, you know, Texas has a lot of pickup trucks that they're selling. Um, so I think that that will probably put more pressure on used prices, particularly for trucks and SUVs, because there is a, a bit of a scarcity in those segments. What makes the Texas automobile market different from perhaps the national market? Well, I think that Texas, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big open space. So these people are going to need cars. It's not as if it's a, a disaster is hit in a place where public transportation is something that people could rely on in the interim. A lot of these folks, they're going to need cars pretty much, you know, right away to, to continue their lives. So I think that that probably makes it a little bit different. And they just tend to, they tend to buy more trucks, more SUVs. So those profit-rich uh, vehicles for, for automakers are going to make a lot more money selling the F-150 than they would a Ford Fiesta. So I think that makes it a uh, you know right market for these these auto companies. Jessica, do you have any sense of how many cars, uh, how many vehicles in general were destroyed in the flooding and uh, what type of volumes that would mean for companies like Ford? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because um, it, it does seem as if, you know, we did some estimates, um, but some of the reports that we're hearing is that, you know, the damage to cars was perhaps not as great as, as you know, it feared in the beginning of the week or, you know, the beginning of the storm. We start to realize, wow, this is getting really bad. But for someone like Ford, Texas is their their number one market. So getting these, uh, you know, these vehicles to dealers is probably going to be, you know, a top priority for the company moving forward. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a big money state for them. Jessica, in today's non- Farm payroll report, we learned that about 36,000 jobs were added to the manufacturing sector, and uh, more than 10,000 of those jobs were in the automobile industry. Does that indicate that the auto manufacturers will start ramping up production? Um, I think that's probably still tentative. I mean, inventory numbers look really high. So not only are inventory numbers high, but also the amount of time cars sit on dealership lots, that's been mounting all through 2017. Um, I think that there probably is pockets of inventory or of uh, manufacturing that need to be addressed, especially as, as it relates to, um, you know, new features like autonomous features, all, you know, all of that sector. Um, but it seems as if inventory for now is, is, is doing okay, but there may be pockets, uh, you know, as we look to replace damaged cars in Texas, Louisiana, those areas, there may be a bit of a ramp up in production, but I'd say that that's probably pretty tentative at this point. Jessica, I know this may be a sideline, but I'm wondering if electric and hybrid vehicles will be hurt by the publicity related to Hurricane Harvey, because clearly you might be able to start, you know, a fossil fuel vehicle, but trying to get an electric vehicle started when everything is wet, that's not necessarily going to be an easy challenge. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know what you're saying. Definitely, um, I, probably not. I mean, I think when you look at the, you know, the electric vehicle, like if you look at pure electric vehicles, the battery electrics, they make up less than one percent of the market, about 0.6 percent this year. So I don't think you're necessarily going to see a big hit of fallout from folks that are, you know, saying uh, maybe not. Um, I think people that like electric, they're, you know, they're fairly either, you know, motivated by some of the price, or they're, you know, they're they're diehard in terms of, you know, that's what they want. So I would imagine that any uh, any effects would be pretty pretty small. The effects of higher gasoline prices, uh, we know that they may be temporary because of the uh, output constraints from refineries in the Gulf region. What will that do to drivers, uh, sort of driving and the, and the sales outlook? Yeah, it's going to be a bit of a shock for folks because I think that we've been so used to low gas prices for so long. 
I don't think it's necessarily going to change the uh, people that need to buy a car or that you know have planned to buy a car for the rest of the year. Um, you could possibly see shifts in what people buy. I, I would imagine not just because of the shift towards crossovers. But crossovers are a lot more fuel efficient than they were than the SUVs of the past. So I think people are willing to accept that difference in, in fuel economy changes. So I think that it could put a you know in terms a hamper or may delay some purchases. Um, you know depending on how long really the gas price spikes um, uh, you know is for. I think when you see temporary when people see temporary uh, expected spikes, it doesn't really change their purchasing behavior. I think a a gas shock will start to change people's purchase behavior after an extended period like six months. That's kind of what we saw in 2008 when gas prices got you know really out of control during the spring and summertime. Will other equipment makers see better times ahead because of all the repairs that will need to be made for these automobiles? Likely, especially, um, you know, part suppliers, I think that there could be, um, you know, for those vehicles that are able to be salvaged, of course, that's a big question in terms of what can be saved and what cannot be saved. Um, but I think replacement parts, um, you know, trying to, to fix some of these cars um, is, you know, could see a boost. I think there's a lot of questions because of all the electric uh, componentry now in cars of how much can really, you know, be saved and, and if they should be. So I think there probably are a lot of questions around that right now. Thank you very much. Jessica Caldwell is executive director of industry analysis for Edmunds.com, joining us from Santa Monica. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.